And if you would all join me in the call to worship, and this is found in Psalm 116. Uh, The call to worship is on the inside of your bulletin. So let's, let's stand. I love the Lord because he hears my voice and my supplication. The cords of death encompassed me, and the terrors of Sheol came upon me. I found distress and sorrow. Gracious is the Lord and righteous. Yes, our God is compassionate. Now, if you turn in your hymns of grace to number five, page five, how great thou art.
Let's pray. Oh, Lord, thank you for the reminder of your um, power and majesty, your creative work, and the suffering and pain that you had to endure to save sinners such as us. And we are thankful for that. If it were not for that, we would not be here today to sing praises to your name. We acknowledge that uh, we have... We are sinners. Many of them were mentioned in Sunday school this morning, and, and that is us. But we are thankful that you went through what the Father sent you to do, to come and save a people for yourself. We pray as we sit before you this morning to hear your word and contemplate your work that you would meet with us. Come in your spirit and, and draw us onto you and help us to behold once again the majesty and greatness and mercy that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ this day. Strengthen those who will bring your word and help us to enter in uh, singing heartily onto you um, with all of our being. Um, draw us onto you, Lord Jesus, we pray, and lift your, may we lift your name up in this place. Amen. Now again, if you turn in your hymns of grace to page 388, page 388, he will hold me fast.
turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke, Luke chapter 19, our continuing march through the book of Dr. Luke. In this chapter, we'll see the story of Zacchaeus and how he had to see Jesus as he passed through. And we'll be seeing the parable of money usage and as well the triumphal entry and the traitors driven from the temple. So beginning at verse 1 of chapter 19, he, Jesus, entered Jericho and was passing through. And there was a man called by the name of Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and he was rich. Zacchaeus was trying to see who Jesus was and was unable because of the crowd, for he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree in order to see him, for he was about to pass through that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for today I must stay at your house. And he hurried and came down and received him gladly. And when they saw it, they all began to grumble, saying, He has gone to the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stopped and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, half of my possessions I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will give back four times as much. It's interesting because the law in that day required one-fifth restitution. So we can see the generosity and the the repentance, as it were, in Zacchaeus. Verse 9, And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he too is the son of Abraham. For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. And while they were listening to these things, Jesus went on to tell a parable because he was near Jerusalem and they supposed that the kingdom of God was going to appear immediately. So he said a nobleman went to a distant country to receive a kingdom for himself and then return. And he called ten of his slaves and gave them ten minas minas, and said to them, do business with this until I come back. But his citizens hated him and sent a delegation after him, saying, We do not want this man to reign over us. When he returned, after receiving the kingdom, he ordered that these slaves to whom he had given the money might be called be called to him so that he might know what business they had done. The first appeared, saying, Master, your mina has made ten minas more. And he said to him, Well done, good, uh, good slave, because you have been faithful in a very little thing. You are to be in authority over ten cities. The second came, saying, Your mina master has made five minas. And he said to him also, And you are to be over five cities. Another came, saying, Master, here is your mina, which I have put away in a handkerchief. For I was afraid of you because you are an exacting man. You take up what you did not lay down and reap what you did not sow. He said to him, By your own words I will judge you, you worthless slave. 
Did you know that I am an exacting man taking up what I did not lay down and reaping what I did not sow? Then why did you not put my money in the bank? And having come, I would have collected it with interest. Then he said to the bystanders, Take the mina away from him and give it to the one who has ten minas. And they said to him, Master, he has ten minas already. I tell you that everyone who has more shall be given. But from the one who does not have even what he does have shall be taken away. I think uh, an application here as we see these uh, men, uh, most of whom are trying to be faithful uh, in working, uh, we too are to be faithful, faithfully at work, bearing fruit until our master comes. We are to be at work. Verse 27. But these enemies of mine who did not want me to reign over them, bring them here and slay them in my presence. After he had said these things, he was going on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. And when he approached Bethphage and Bethany near the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples saying, Go into the village ahead of you. There, as you enter, you will find a colt tied on which no one has yet ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say, the Lord has need of it. So those who, ha- who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and they threw their coats on the colt and put Jesus on it. As he was going, they were spreading their coats on the road. As soon as he was approaching near the descent of Mount of Olives, the whole crowd of the disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the miracles which they had seen, shouting, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. But Jesus answered, I tell you, if these become silent, the stones will cry out. These are the same people who a short time later would be crying out, Crucify him. Crucify him. Verse 41. When he approached Jerusalem, he saw the city and wept over it, saying, If you had known in this day, even you, the things which make for peace, but now they have been hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will throw up a barricade against you and surround you and hem you in on every side. And they will level you to the ground and your children within you. And they will not leave in you one stone upon another. Because you did not recognize the time of your visitation. And of course we know that Titus uh, in 70 A.D. fulfilled that prophecy of not one stone being left on another. Jerusalem was leveled to the ground. Verse 45, Jesus entered the temple and began to drive out those who were selling, saying to them, 
it is written, And my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a robber's den. And he was teaching daily in the temple, but the chief priests and the scribes and the leading men, the people, were trying to destroy him. And they could not find anything that they might do, for all the people were hanging on to every word he said. God bless the reading of his precious word. Please join me in prayer. Lord, Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning full of joy and rejoicing and praise and glorifying your name, yet we do confess that we have sinned against you. We have neglected your goodness to us. We have forgotten at times the price that was paid for our salvation. And so, Father, we would ask that you would pour out your forgiveness upon us. And your word says that you are faithful to do just that. We pray, Father, that you would strengthen us when temptations come, that we'd be able to stand firm to resist the devil, and he will flee. We thank you for that power that resides in our hearts, that gift of God to believe, for we can do nothing without you. Lord, we praise you this morning, and we we thank you, Lord, for the blessings of this past week. We thank you, Lord, for our families. We thank you, Father, for the temporal blessings that you have given us. We thank you for our homes, our vehicles. We thank you for the money that you have provided us. We thank you for friendships, for, for relatives. We thank you, Lord, for our church family. Help us to be grateful for all things, for all things do come from you. Father, this morning we do think about those persecuted Christians in faraway lands, and we're thankful for the privilege that we have standing here in Adrian, Michigan, praying this morning for those who are carrying, the, uh, carrying on the work Uh, of your kingdom. We pray, Father, that you would help them to be fruitful in their work. We pray that you would strengthen them, help them to, who as Paul said, uh, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We pray, Father, that you would give them great courage that they would take care that your, your word goes forth in truth and accuracy, precision, touching hearts and lives. Father, we do pray for our nation this morning. We pray for our leaders and those in authority over us, for your word says that we are to be obedient to those who are in authority. And Father, we do pray for our leaders. We pray for our president and vice president. We pray, Father, for the halls of Congress. We pray, Father, for the Supreme Court. 
We pray, Father, for our governor. We pray, Father, for our mayor. And and uh, we just ask, Lord, that uh, you might send revival to this nation who has been coming off the tracks for some time now. We pray, Father, for our church family. And we give thanks that you have unified this church over the years. It's been over 30 years now in existence. We have been blessed with a pastor who is, is, is still here. We thank you, Father, uh, for our children, the children of this church. And we ask, Lord, that you do a wonderful work in their lives, that you might speak to their hearts while they are still yet young, and that you might welcome them into your kingdom. We pray for unsaved loved ones. We pray for those who are being tried even yet today with hardships, challenges, things that appear to be in such chaos, and yet we know that you are in work. Father, we pray for Pastor Walden, Trish, and their family, that they are uh, enjoying one another's company and that they are worshiping the Lord this morning together. What a joy that will be. We pray, Father, that you would bless Mark Bauer this morning as he brings the message. And we pray, Father, that we would have a ten of years. We pray, Father, that his message through your word would go forth in power. We pray the Holy Spirit to come and join us in this place. May we even sense your presence, your very presence. Help us this morning to feed upon your word. May, un- may unsaved hearts and souls in this very place hear the gospel this morning that Jesus died for our sins, was buried, and on the third day he arose from the grave and he is arisen today. And upon believing this truth, bringing forth true repentance, you will gain an eternity with Jesus Christ, and we shall see him as he is. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Now if you would turn in your hymns of grace to page 365, Ancient Words. 365 in your hymns of grace. Please stand.
Mark. Well, good morning. I bring you greetings from Grace Baptist Church of Canton. It's good to be with you this morning. For our message today, if you would, turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Second Corinthians chapter 5 will be focusing in on verses 14 and 15. And I will be reading from the ESV translation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14. We read this. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. Well, let us ask God to give us help as we consider these verses this morning. Please join me as we pray. Our dear God, we bow before you and Lord, we look to you for the help that only you can give. We confess and acknowledge our weakness. We are just but frail, frail vessels bringing your truth, your glorious words, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Lord, we know that we are unworthy. We are, we are not able in and of ourselves, but Lord, we know that in your, in your power and in your strength and, and by your will, you can take even these words that are spoken this day, Lord, to use it to the, to, to the benefit of those who are here, to the strengthening of your people, to even to the salvation of the lost, and through all of this that you might get the glory. We pray, our Father, that you would be with us. Send your Spirit and help us this day. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, what motivates people? What motivates you? What is that thing, that, that kind of force that, that drives you to take action? That thing that drives you forward to try to achieve a goal? What makes you willing to sacrifice, to endure hardships, to deny yourself, your comforts and your pleasures? Well, for some in the world, it's money. They're willing to work long hours They're willing to sacrifice their time with family and friends. They're willing to do just about whatever it takes to be able to achieve that goal of getting more money. Well, for for others, it might be physical fitness and health. They're willing to set their alarm very early in the morning to crawl out of bed on a dark morning, to go out, sometimes in the rain, sometimes in the cold, to run, to exercise, And they're ready to endure pain. 
They're going to push themselves, their bodies to the limit. And in some cases, they're willing to, to deny themselves of food, their favorite foods, things that they just really enjoy. But they do this. They do this so as to avoid anything that might have a negative impact on their health. All of this is being done for them to be able to achieve a goal, to improve their physical fitness and their health. But this morning we will look at what motivated Paul. What was it that drives Paul forward? What was it that drives Paul to remain faithful in his calling to continue in his ministry, the ministry of preaching the gospel, to stay constant in his service of the Lord. Well, we're in the second letter of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth. And here, if you look back in, in, verse, in chapter 4, we'll, we'll read of Paul describing his ministry, his gospel ministry, a ministry in which he preached. He preached Christ. In verse 5, we read that Paul's ministry is a ministry. It's not focused on him. In verse 5, he says this, For we proclaim, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. His ministry, it's not about Paul. It's a ministry, it's about Christ. And then further in verse 7, we read this, that it's in a ministry in which he acknowledges his weakness. He describes himself as a, a jar of clay, not a, like a jar of stone, something strong and something that is enduring. No, he describes himself as a jar of clay. And in verse 7 we read, but we have this treasure, the gospel, this glorious truth of Christ, the one who died for us, our Savior. This treasure is in jars of clay. He sees himself as a weak, unworthy, fragile messenger And this is all done, why? To show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Paul's ministry, it was not an easy ministry, we know. He did not have smooth sailing. It's one in which he faced challenges and obstacles constantly. Looking again in chapter 4, look at verses 7 and 8, how he describes his gospel ministry. He writes this, he says, We are afflicted in every way. It's as though, in some translations it says, we're being hard-pressed on every side. But he says, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Despite the trials, despite the affliction, despite all the opposition that he faced, Sometimes opposition that was so intense that it threatened to make him feel as though they were going to crush him. As though he was going to be driven to despair, that he would feel forsaken at times, even that he felt as though he was going to be destroyed. Yet, yet Paul continued. He continued in this ministry of preaching Jesus Christ. What then was it that helped him to not lose heart? What was it that motivated Paul to remain faithful? Well, I think as we we read this chapter, we'll see that there are several things that motivated Paul to remain faithful in his ministry. Later in chapter 4, he speaks of that, that eternal weight of glory, that glory that awaits him as that which motivated him to not lose heart. In 2 Corinthians 4.17, he writes this, For this slight 
momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Paul knows that the difficulties that he faces, the suffering that he's enduring during his ministry, that these are inconsequential. They're but slight. They're but momentary. They're not to be compared to that eternal, that eternal weight of glory that he is looking forward to. That motivated Paul to not lose heart. But also, in chapter 5, verses 1 through 6, he speaks of a confidence, a confidence of a future home, a future home with Christ, and that motivated him. Paul writes, knowing that when we put off this tent, when our earthly home is destroyed, when Paul dies, we have a building, a home from God, and then, then we will be home with the Lord. This world, this world is, is not where he is going to remain. This world is not his home. And therefore, Paul, he doesn't fear death, for he knows on that day that he dies, on that day he will then be home, his eternal home. He will be with Christ. And he speaks of that day. He speaks of a day that when he will stand before Christ. Think of it. And that thought motivated Paul. In in verses 9 and 10 of chapter 5, he says, knowing that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. And he says, so he makes it his aim to please him. Knowing the fact he's going to stand before Christ one day, his aim is to please Christ. That was his aim in his life. His desire was to glorify God in his ministry. His desire was to remain faithful in declaring the gospel, to not waver despite the challenges and despite the opposition that he faced. Now, while all of these certainly had an impact on Paul and they motivated Paul in his ministry, what I would like us to focus on this morning for our messages is a motivation that he found the motivation in the love of Christ. A love that motivated Paul to remain faithful in his ministry. And as we look at the love of Christ, as we do so, we will look at Christ's love for us. And we'll see it's a love that's demonstrated by his substitutionary death, his death for us. But also we will be looking at the effect of that love of Christ on us. We will see that it controls us, it constrains us, it compels us, and then we'll have some application. So then first, let us consider Christ's love for us. Looking again at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 14, we read these words, for the love of Christ controls us. And it's fair to ask, is Paul here referring to his love for Christ? Or is it Christ's love for him? Now, some may disagree. Some may view Paul's comments here as saying that it's Paul's love for Christ. But most commentators understand this phrase is meaning Christ's love for Paul. Christ's love for us. And I would agree with that. Because this view is based on the fact that Christ's love for us is supported by what Paul then focuses in on as he continues on in this passage. Notice that after making this statement, after asserting 
that the love of Christ controls us. Paul then gives this as the reason. The reason that he can make this statement. He says, because, because we have concluded, Paul has concluded that one has died for all. This is the reason that Paul has concluded that Christ loves us. It's based on the one, the one who died. And that one is Christ. It is Christ who died. But it's important to note that Christ did not die for himself. Christ died for all. Christ died for all of his people. Christ died for us. Christ died for Paul. It's by Christ's death for us that Paul knows of Christ's love for him. By this we know love. By this Paul knows love. That he, being Christ, laid down his life for us. So Paul asserts that it's the love of Christ that controls him. He made this connection between the love of Christ and the one who died for all. And therefore Paul then can conclude the love of Christ controls him. It's not Paul's love for Christ, it's Christ's love for Paul. And it's Christ's love for all of us. And it's a love that was demonstrated by Christ's substitutionary death. His death for us. So as we think of Christ's substitutionary death, let us consider three things that were accomplished by Christ's substitutionary death. Three things that demonstrate how greatly Christ loved us. In his substitutionary death, we'll look at how that death paid the penalty for our sin. We'll look at his substitutionary death and we will see how it absorbed the wrath of God. And then we will look at that death and see how it then reconciled us to God. Well, first then, Christ's substitutionary death, it paid the penalty for our sin. When Christ died for us, it was when we were ungodly, when we were sinners. Turn with me again to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5, please look at verses 6 through 8 again. We heard it this morning. Verses 6, beginning in verse 6, we read this. For while we were still weak, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would even would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At the right time, when Christ died for us, it was not when we were righteous. We were not holy and, and, and something that to be desired. No, at the time when Christ died for us, we were sinners. And as sinners, our sins carried with them the penalty of death. For the wages of sin is death. Death. That was the debt that we owed. That is what we deserved. But in the death of Christ, our sins were transferred to Christ. Our sins were imputed to Christ. The sinless one was to make, made to be sin for us. And it's because of our sin that Christ had to die. 
He had to shed his blood. For it says in Hebrews, for without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. By his blood, we have been forgiven. The penalty that we owed for our sin has been paid. The debt that we owed for our sin has been canceled. We have been redeemed. In him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood. The forgiveness of our sins. So it's by Christ's substitutionary death, his death in our place, that the penalty for our sins have been paid. But then secondly, we see Christ's substitutionary death. In that death, he absorbed the wrath of God. John Murray writes this, The wrath of God is the inevitable reaction of the divine holiness against sin. God sees sin and he can do nothing but react in wrath. That is his reaction to sin. Wrath is what we deserved as sinners. We deserve the full fury of the wrath of God. But in Romans 3, verse 25, speaking of Christ, Christ whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. To propitiate. That means to appease, to placate. When Christ died on the cross, Christ's blood appeased the very wrath of God. As he died, Christ drank the entire cup of God's wrath. The wrath of God that was such a fearful thought to Christ. Jesus, remember that he sought to to turn away from it. He, He prayed to the Father that if it be possible that that cup might be passed from him, that he would not have to drink that cup. But that was not possible. Christ had to drink that cup. Only Christ, only Christ was the one that was able to drain that entire cup of the wrath of God. The death of Christ is absolutely unique. It had infinite value because of who he was. The perfect, sinless son of God. And in his death, it fully satisfied the eternal punishment that was required due to our sin. On the cross, Christ absorbed the full, unmitigated wrath of God. The wrath of God that was poured out on Christ, on the cross, as he died that terrible physical death. A death in which he suffered greatly. Beatings and scourgings and having nails pounded into his flesh. The loss of blood, the asphyxiation. The agony all of it leading to his physical death. But then that wrath of God was poured out on Christ. He suffered. He suffered separation from God. In our place, in lieu of our being eternally separated from God, being cast into outer darkness, no, while he was hanging on the cross, Christ was separated from God. It's a punishment that was so terrible that he cried out, My God! My God, why have you forsaken me? Who can comprehend this? God being forsaken by God. Christ alone there on the cross, isolated and in darkness and suffering. Apart from the love, apart from the goodness 
enduring the wrath. In this is love, Christ's love, that Christ was sent to be the propitiation for our sin. That wrath of God has been appeased. The wrath that we deserve for our sin, fully absorbed by the death of Christ. This is the love of Christ, the love of Christ for us. But then thirdly, we see Christ's substitutionary death. It accomplished that we were being reconciled to God. It reconciled us to God. In Isaiah 59, verse 2, we read, Our iniquities have made a separation between us and God. Our sins have hid his face. Our sins have alienated us from God. We were separate. We were strangers. There was was enmity. There was hostility. But by Christ's death, we're no longer aliens. We're no longer separated from God. Our reconciliation was accomplished by the death of Christ. In Romans chapter 5, verse 10, we read this. While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Quoting Spurgeon, he says this. Herein is love indeed, that the infinitely pure should suffer for the sinful, the just for the unjust, to bring us to God. By Christ's blood, we who were once far off have been brought near to God. Christ broke down the walls of hostility. He reestablished our relationship with God. It has been restored by the love of Christ. We have been reconciled to God. The love of Christ for us, a love that was demonstrated by Christ's death on the cross, a substitutionary death, a death in which he paid the penalty for our sin, a death in which he appeased the wrath of God, a death in which that we are now reconciled to God. Think of it. We know that greater love has no one than this, that someone would lay down his life for a friend. But think of it. When Christ died for us, we were not his friends. Christ died for us when we were his enemies, when we were sinners. Christ's substitutionary death for us is the greatest demonstration of his love for us. This is the love of Christ. This is Christ's love for us. This is Christ's love for Paul. This is Christ's love for all of his people. So we have seen the love of Christ. Now this brings us to our second main point. Well, what then is the effect? What is the effect of the love of Christ on us? In verse 14, Paul tells us that the love of Christ controls us. The Greek verb that's translated as controls in the ESV, it can also be translated this way. It can be translated by the word constrains. It can be translated by the word compels. So therefore, in in different translations, you might read this. For the love of Christ controls us. For the love of Christ constrains us. For the love of Christ compels us. And in each of these translations, I think we'll see just a little differing emphasis on the effect of the love of Christ on us. 
Well, then first let us look at the effect of the the love of Christ on us in that it controls us. Christ's love controls us as a result of Christ's death for us. One died for all, therefore all have died. Turn to Romans chapter 6 for a moment. If you would look at Romans chapter 6, in verses 6 and 7. In Romans chapter 6, in verse 6 we read this. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. In these verses we're told that in Christ's death for us, we have died with him. We have been crucified with him. And as we have died with him, we have also died to self. We've died to our old self. And we know that we once lived for self. It was all about me. Self controlled me. The desires of the body, the desires of the mind. Self was what absorbed my every thought, trying to please myself. That's how I lived. But in Christ, I have now died to self. My old self was crucified with him. And as we have died to self, we no longer live for self. And we are to put off the old self, put off those old earthly desires of the flesh in which we once walked. Those former desires which called us to sexual immorality, to impurity, to passion, to evil desire, to covetousness, to anger, to wrath, to malice, to slander, to obscene talk, to lying to one another. The love of Christ now controls us. We're no longer controlled by that old self and its desires. We have died to self. And as we have died to self, we have also died to sin. Sin that once controlled us. Sin that once enslaved us. The chains, the chains of sin have been broken. We have been set free from the bondage of sin. Sin no longer reigns. Sin has lost its power over us. John Murray writes this. He says this. It it is the fact of having died with Christ in the efficacy of his death and having risen with him in the power of the resurrection that ensures for all the people of God deliverance from the dominion of sin. Sin no longer has dominion over you. And because of that, I can now say no to sin. For I have died to sin. John Gill puts it this way. Christ died as the head and the representative of his people. And they all died in him. They were crucified with him. And then he goes on to say this. The consequence of which is deliverance from the dominion of sin. Whereby they become capable of living to the glory of Christ. Thus we can say to sin, when we're tempted to sin, sin you no longer have control. Sin you no longer reign over me. 
So the love of Christ, it controls us. Therefore, we have died. Died to self. We have died to sin. But furthermore, the love of Christ controls us in how we now live. Looking back then, looking back at 2 Corinthians chapter 5, please notice with me in verse 15. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 15, Paul goes on to say this. And he, being Christ, died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. The love of Christ, Christ's death for us, it controls us in that we now, we now live for him. We live for Christ. We have died with him and we have now been raised with him. We've been raised to newness of life. We're now a new creation in Christ Jesus. The old has passed away. Behold, all has become new. We no longer live for ourselves. The love of Christ now controls us to walk in newness of life. And as we walk, we seek to put on the new self, the desires of the Spirit. We seek to live a life of of compassion, a life of kindness, a life of humility, of meekness, of patience, of bearing with one another, forgiving each other, and above all, to put on love, to love Christ and to love our neighbor. So the love of Christ controls us in such a way that it completely dominates us so that we now live for Christ. Paul experienced this. He experiences control of the love of Christ in his life. For in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, he writes this, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. So we see one of the effects of the love of Christ on us is that the love of Christ controls us. I'm no longer controlled by self. I'm no longer controlled by sin. I am now controlled by Christ. And I live for him, the one who died for me. Well, next, let us look at another effect of the love of Christ on us. An effect that is is kind of opened up for us by the word constrains. We read that the love of Christ constrains us. Helps us to see maybe a little different facet of the impact of the love of Christ on us. When we think of something that constrains, I thought of driving down the highway and entering in a construction zone. And we have, a, we have a concrete barrier on the one side, we have a concrete barrier on the other side, and those barriers do what? They constrain us. They cause us to stay in the path, they stay in the lane. They keep us from drifting to the right or to the left. Likewise, the love of Christ constrains us to keep on the path of life, to keep us from drifting away, to keep us faithful to Christ as we live our lives for him. And that life that we live, that life is now a life of obedience. With our chief aim to live our lives in such a way that that we do all to the glory of God. Whether we eat or whether we drink or whatever we do. In the small things in life, the mundane things of life, 
or in the big things of life, the significant decisions, in every aspect of our life, we do all with this focus, a focus to bring glory to God. And as we more fully understand that immeasurable love of Christ, that love that was demonstrated in his dying for us, Christ's love for us will undoubtedly produce in us a response, a response of love. It will be our love for Christ. We will love him. We will love Christ who died, who gave himself for us. And as we love Christ, we will seek to obey his commands, will we not? The commands to to love the Lord your God with all of your soul, with all of your strength, with all of your might, and to love our neighbor as ourselves. It will constrain us to, to seek to do his will, not my own will. And that love will also restrain us from sin. It will act almost as like guardrails for us to keep us from falling into sin. Whenever we're tempted to sin, think of the love of Christ. Christ who died for those sins, every sin of ours, the past, the present, the future sins. And when we are tempted to sin, ask yourself this question. Do I value that sin so great? Do I value my Savior and his love so little? When I think of the love of Christ and his death for my sin, how then can I commit this sin? And though we must confess that our hearts are prone to wander, our minds can be so easily distracted, the love of Christ will will constrain us. They will keep our hearts and our minds fixed on Christ, the one who died for us. As Charles Hodge puts it, the love of Christ is the governing influence that controls us to make the will of Christ the rule of our obedience and the glory of Christ the great end for which we live. So the love of Christ, it constrains us to keep us on that path of life as we live our life for Christ. But then, one further aspect, one further effect of the love of Christ on us, it's that it compels us. Our verse could be translated this way, for the love of Christ compels us. This translation gives the picture of the love of Christ acting as an irresistible force. The love of Christ is something that's drawing us It's pulling us. It's propelling us to Christ. Similar to a a magnetic force from a strong magnet. When you hold a, a metal object near it, it can do nothing but be attracted to that magnet. It's an irresistible force. That piece of metal cannot remain static. It cannot remain in its place. So too, as a Christian, it's not possible for us to resist the love of Christ. We cannot remain static. We cannot remain neutral. We cannot just stay in our place. No, the love of Christ, it exerts a force on us that's so powerful that we have no other choice but then to be drawn to Christ, to continue to move forward toward him. 
the love of Christ, it can it constrains, it compels us to continue to live for Christ and to serve Him. And I know that, that there can be times as we are walking in the path that, that God has ordained, as we're living our lives for Christ, when trials come. They may be physical, they may be emotional, they may be spiritual trials. And with those trials, we experience suffering. We experience pain. We experience anguish. And in our hearts, there are times that we fear and we're overcome at times with distress to the point that we might cry out as the psalmist did, Oh, that I had wings like a dove. I would fly away and be at rest. We're so overwhelmed that all we want to do is to escape. We want to flee. We want to hide. We want to avoid those trials. We don't want to keep walking down that path. Well, it's at times like this that we must not look inward. We must not look at our love for Christ. For if we look at our love for Christ, I think we all will confess at times that love is weak. That love at times can be faltering. That love at times may even grow cold. No, we must not look inward. We must look to Christ. We must consider Christ's love for us, a love that will continue to compel us, to help us to press on and to not give up. And can we not be so very thankful that we don't have to rely on our own love for Christ? We don't have to look to that as being that force that compels us on in our Christian walk. For we know that there is the potential for our love to lose its strength over time. But not so for the love of Christ. For Christ's love for us, it's a force that will never fail. In Romans chapter 8, verse 35, Paul writes this, Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword? The answer to this rhetorical question is, is nothing. Nothing shall separate us from the love of Christ. And then Paul goes on to drive this point home for us. He goes on to to expand that comprehensive extent of the love of Christ that never fails. And in verses 38 and 39, he says this, For I am sure, I am confident, that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing will separate us. Nothing that we will ever face in life. Not even our greatest enemy, death. Not the present, not the current trials that we may be enduring. Not not the worries of the future the unknown, those things that might come. Not our personal feelings, whether we feel that we're having success or whether we feel as though we're failures. It's not the government. It's not the rulers of this world. It's not the persecution that they might bring. Not even the powers of spiritual forces. Not anything in all of creation, not storms, not floods, not natural disasters. No, there's nothing. Nothing that will be able to separate us from the love of Christ. The love of Christ, it's an irresistible force 
that will continue to compel us forward, drawing us to Christ as we seek to live our life for him. This then is the effect of the love of Christ on us. It's a love that controls us. It's a love that constrains us. It's a love that compels us. Well, what then can we learn from this text? How might it apply to us today? Well, first, I'd suggest that may the love of Christ for us control us, constrain us, and compel us to remain faithful as we seek to live our life for him. Paul was controlled by the love of Christ. It's the love that motivated him to, to live his life for Christ, to remain faithful in his ministry despite the challenges, despite the obstacles that he faced. And though I'm sure most of us will never face the same intense trials that Paul faced and suffered, but we all will suffer trials in life. Trials and afflictions that at times may be so severe that we do not have the strength to bear them. They press in upon us. They're weighing us down, perhaps to the point that we feel that they may even crush us. Trials and afflictions that at times we just don't have any explanation for them. We do not understand why. Why must we suffer in this way? We may be so perplexed that it may lead us to a feeling of utter despair. Trials and afflictions that bring with them a burden. A burden that at times that we believe that no one else will ever understand. At times causing us to feel so alone, even forsaken. Trials and afflictions that persist. They seemingly never end constantly striking us down again and again to the point that we might feel that we have no hope of ever, ever achieving any relief, fearing that they will utterly destroy us. Well, it's in times like this that we have to be controlled, not by self, but by the love of Christ. It's a love that he demonstrated. Think back to that love of Christ that he demonstrated when he died for us. Remember that he died for us. And when he died, he paid the penalty that our sins deserved. Christ, think of it, Christ who knew no sin became sin for us. Get a hold of that. He paid that penalty so that we would not have to. When he died for us, he absorbed the wrath of God. Think of it. Christ, the one who... God said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Christ, who had never experienced anything other than the love of God. He endured the wrath of God for us. And in doing so, we will never, ever have to fear experiencing the wrath of God against us. For he has absorbed it all by his death. And again, when he died, he he reconciled us to God. Christ, think of it, Christ who was with the Father from all eternity. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God. He was with God for all of eternity. There was nothing that ever separated him from God. Always enjoying fellowship, a relationship with God. But, 
On that cross, he was forsaken. On that cross, he was separated from God. Not because of his sin, but because of our sin. And now, by his blood, we have peace with God. We are now part of God's family. We are God's children. And we will never, ever be separated from God. Well, may a deeper understanding of the love of Christ, his death for us, what it accomplished, may it take hold of us, may it it grip our hearts so that we do not give up, even when we face severe trials and affliction. May that love of Christ continue to draw us to him, ready to endure whatever trial, whatever affliction may come as we seek to live our lives for Christ. But then secondly, may the love of Christ control us, constrain us and compel us to live a life for Christ in which we give him our all. As one man put it, the overpowering love of Christ manifested when he died for us on the cross calls forth our all in response. We can't hold back anything from him. Nothing should be so precious to us that we should not be ready to give it up for Christ the one who died for us. And we must no longer live for self. Self is no longer the king of our heart. Christ is now our king. And it's for him that I now live. And as my king, I will seek to love him. I will seek to obey him. I will seek to serve him with all of my heart, with my every action, ready to deny myself, to give my life for him, the one who died for me. In that hymn, When I Survey the Wondrous Cross, Isaac Watts closes his hymn with these words, Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. He focuses our attention on the amazing love of Christ, the Prince of Glory, who died for me. And then he asserts that this love of Christ, it demands a response. And he says that response, it demands our soul, our life, our all. And as I sing that, I have to ask myself, and I would ask you today, those for whom Christ has died, does that love of Christ Does that not demand a response? And must not that response be that I must live for him, a life in which I am ready to give him my all? Well, may God even help us to do so. And then finally, if there are some here who are still controlled by by self, if self is still reigning in your heart, may the love of Christ control you. I urge you to see that amazing love that gracious love of Christ, a love in which he died for sinners. And may that love just overwhelm you. May it wash over you and take control of you that you would be ready to deny yourself, to yield your heart to Christ and accept Christ by faith even this day so that you may now live for him, controlled by his love. Well, may God be pleased to bless his word this day. Join me now as we pray. Our dear God, we bow and we confess how how weak and 
how frail we are and how often we fail. And we know that we love you, but yet at times our love is is weak. But Lord, we are just so thankful that it is your love for us which is the thing that keeps us. It is your love for us that continues to compel us to live a life for you. Lord, we pray that you would help us to put away the things of this world, to deny ourselves, to give our lives to you, to give our all for you, to remain faithful. Lord, help us, despite the trials, despite the affliction. Lord, help us to fix our hearts and fix our minds on Christ, the one who died for us. And Lord, we pray for those that are here that are are still, still loving self. We pray that they could would see that there is, there is one who loves them with a love that is so great, a love in which he died while they were yet sinners. We pray that even this day that you would change your heart, draw them to yourself. We pray, our Father, that you would save even this day. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Mark. Now, if you would turn to hymn number 548, More Love to Thee, in your Trinity hymnals, 548.